This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? Learn more about Wisconsin's cheese-making history at wisconsincheese.com. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider, and I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, career changers, interesting, cool, wacky, smart people who do cool things in the world of food. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm your co-host, Valerie Lomas. And we're going to introduce our guest in just a second, but uh, I don't know, Valerie, what do you want to talk about let's at the top re- of the show today? Yeah, let's recap the Heritage Radio Network Gala. Oh, that was pretty cool. There was that some was excellent night. food. Uh, an octopus salad with uh, boiled potatoes and little purple potatoes from, from mm-hmm. Otto, the pizzeria. What were your standout dishes? Um, I was really surprised to, she, to see Chef Todd Richards there from Atlanta. He um, He's the owner of One Flew South, um, award-winning restaurant in the Atlanta airport. And he also won um, cookbook, uh, I think it was the American cookbook category at IACP this past year for Seoul. And he had a mushroom risotto that was quite delicious. Yeah, it smel- I mean, that whole the whole area around his table smelled like truffles. I know, it smelled, smelled so like good. heaven. I think you're, I met your wife, met my Shala. Wife. She's a, right, my top secret. Yeah, right, that we she's your secret podcast, weapon. But nobody, she is. She's lovely. She's not my wife. So Hi, Shala. I think she listens <laughs> to us. Should, should we say embarrassing things uh, about her? And she said embarrassing things about you. Yeah, not uh, surprising. Yeah, so um, we have a really amazing guest today. We have Denise Woodard, who is the CEO and founder of Partake Foods, a snack company. A snack company, a free-from snack company. We're going to talk a little bit about what that means. Denise, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. So tell us about Partake Foods. What is it? What do you do differently from all the other snacks on the market, and and how did you uh, start it? Sure thing. So I spent the bulk of my career in CPG sales. I I worked at Coca-Cola before this, had no intention of ever leaving and becoming an entrepreneur. And then my daughter was born. She's four now, but right around her first birthday, we learned that she has pretty much a bazillion food allergies. So no tree nuts, no eggs, no corn, no bananas. Um, And Partake was really just born out of my frustration. We were in my living room the summer of 2016. Our nanny, Martha, who now has a small stake of equity in the company, was like, why is your daughter on a paleo diet? You never give her anything fun. And I told her all of my frustrations and woes, which were that the allergy-friendly or free-from products that existed didn't meet my standards from a nutritional perspective. 
I'm not gluten-free or vegan, I always thought that meant healthy, and I very quickly realized it could mean full of gums, starches, sugars, and other weird things I didn't want to feed my child. Um, the stuff that fit the bill from a nutritional perspective, I, I feel like kids are the best food critics because she would literally just spit things out because they, did, they didn't taste normal. Um, and then from an emotional perspective, I very quickly started to see how many things that we do that are fun revolve around food. So whether it's play dates or holidays or birthday celebrations, and if you're always left out because of your dietary restrictions, it's really it really sucks. And so I didn't feel like there was a brand out there that made things that tasted good, were good for you, and was cool enough just to be shared among anyone with or without food allergies. And when I couldn't find it, I started Partake. And I, I must say that as someone who is certainly not out here seeking free from baked goods when I saw your birthday cookies with those sprinkles it really just like it made me happy and I was like I have to try those so I am excited to get my hands on some Yay. tell us a little bit about your product line what what kinds of cookies what are the sometimes you have uh, sneaky secret ingredients that kids might not eat otherwise how does how does that all work exactly so we initially launched with five flavors of cookies um, everything's free of the top eight allergens. So the FDA mandates that companies declare these eight allergens in the U.S. And they are peanuts, tree nuts, soy, eggs, dairy, wheat, fish, and shellfish. So our products are free of the top eight allergens, importantly made in a facility that's free of the top eight allergens to avoid cross-contamination. They're also gluten-free, vegan, non-GMO, kosher, and made with really simple ingredients like organic ancient grain flours. We snuck in some fruits and veggies um, and use minimal sugar. I love that you guys are using some of these ancient grains in your I'm sure kind of secret blend because that's just another thing about like baking that makes things a little bit more interesting and adds some complexity in the flavor. Like, okay, we all know like all purpose flour, like whatever. I don't think it's like adding anything texture wise or even any flavor really. So I love that you guys have some of those ancient grains. I think one of the packages I saw said millet. So that's a pretty fun one. Any other ones you want to share? So we use buckwheat, we use millet, we use some cassava flour. That's how we are able to avoid using like some of the gums and starches that you often find in a lot of the gluten-free products that exist. And then we use a gluten, ugh, gluten-free oat flour as well. Um, you, your background was primarily in sales before starting the company, which I think is a, an atypical route to entrepreneurship. But I mean, I'm not personally having any background in sales myself, developing those skills has been super important in just growing a business. You wind up selling your product, obviously, but also selling yourself and selling the business and selling the concept. And whether you're talking to investors or potential customers or just kind of people at a, a market, uh, can you talk a little bit about that, the relationship between your experience, your background in sales, and, and starting Partake? Sure thing. I think my um, undergraduate major also that I never thought would come in handy, it was in interpersonal communications, and I was so clueless in college because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was like, no matter what, you probably have to talk to people. So that combined with my sales background, I think it just really makes you sit back and listen i think that's a large part of sales like not just going out and telling your story and what you want the person to know but like understanding what their needs are so that you can better tell them why you're a fit or your business is a fit or your product's a fit for what they're looking for so i think it's really just about bringing solutions to to whoever it is that you're you're chatting with um it also has helped 
in terms of like giving me a really tough skin. I will say sales for Partake have been much more challenging than my previous sales role, which was sales for Coca-Cola because every retailer carries Coca-Cola and I was going in with like a no-name company. Um, but I really appreciated how much like store owners and buyers cared about the story and the mission behind the product. And so it made it easy-ish to sell because I was really selling something that I believed in and that I felt really passionate about. What were some of the, the sales challenges early on or what were some of the conversations that didn't go the way you, you expected them to go? I think um, one of the big pushbacks we got was around like, oh, you're just another gluten-free cookie. And so just trying to sell against that, I realized some people actually, it was hard to sell against that from like a features and benefits perspective. So what we started doing was taking our competitors' products and our products and just being like, taste this, and then like letting the conversation go from there. And luckily, think like fingers crossed, it's worked thus far every time. So we started to lean in on different aspects of the brand because I realized that sometimes being a small company, people didn't have as much time for like the back and forth and the conversation. I was like, well, let me just let the product speak for itself. I love that. I think that's so important because, you know, I, I attend a lot of food events with a lot of people <laughs> that are creating food, um, whether it's bloggers or influencers. And it's so interesting because I think it is really so important that food tastes good, especially if you're talking about snacks or cookies, right? This is like literally like not something anyone needs. This is something that we choose to eat you know, to celebrate or to be festive and you want to enjoy it. I don't think anyone wants like a gluten-free or a vegan cookie that doesn't taste like a delicious cookie. So, um, I love that. Now, now I'm like, we need to do a taste test. I want to, <laughs> I have to send some cookies for you all to enjoy. I, I found that with demos. Like I would, I used to lead with this, like all the things you just said, like, do you want to try a gluten-free, vegan, top eight, allergen-free cookie? And unless the person has life-threatening <laughs> food allergies, they just look at you like, no. Right. My husband would lead the demo with, like, do you just want to taste a really delicious cookie? And his sales tactic, although he's not a trained salesperson, worked much better. So sometimes I also learn that simple is much better. Could you talk us through kind of the scope of the problem that you're working on solving, the, the spread of allergies in the U.S. And, and how that impacts, how that's impacted your daughter, how that impacts especially a kid's day-to-day -day life? Sure thing. So I don't have food allergies and neither does my husband. And so I will say I was probably kind of oblivious to them before. But since my daughter's diagnosis with multiple food allergies, I've learned that she's by far not the only child. So some of the stats around food allergies in America right now are two kids in every classroom has a food allergy, a life-threatening food allergy. And that number's increased 50% um, over the past 12 years. 31 million Americans have food allergies. What I find even more depressing, like I found some adult friends of mine who have been eating like lobster or shrimp their entire life and then just one night are out at a restaurant and feel their throat closing up or their tongue getting really swollen. And so I feel like that's even scarier. Like as a child, if you don't know what you're missing out on or you've had to be so vigilant your whole life, you're kind of accustomed to it. But it's also really challenging for adults, I think. Um, from my daughter's perspective, I didn't realize how much stuff revolves around food until I had to avoid so many foods. And so it's being vigilant every day. Luckily, she's still young, so I can control a lot of the stuff that she does and the places she goes. But like, 
It's, I was at a food allergy research education, so it's the largest food nonprofit um, summit a few weeks ago, and they had teenagers in, and they were talking about going on dates. Like, if you have life-threatening food allergies, you can't kiss someone who's had something in the past few hours. And there's, like, all these facets of life where you just don't think about how food allergies affect you. But for my daughter, it, it's play dates. It's the snack at school. It's they're learning how to cook at school. Can she be involved? It's science projects. It's birthday parties. And... I think a lot of times with food allergies, like you don't want to be a burden on anyone else. Like I understand that our family has to deal with it, but it's sometimes uncomfortable when you have to bring it up to someone else. But because there's so many experiences that I don't want her to miss out on where people come together around food, it's like you're always worried that you're that allergy parent or that like person with the dietary restriction that's a pain. And so, you know, it, it does have a large emotional toll on a person, on a family. There's a lot of studies around how food allergies and dietary restrictions um, create increased anxiety. A third of kids with food allergies are bullied because of their food allergies and just then leads to feelings of isolation and just people avoiding events and avo avoiding social um, situations because of their dietary restrictions. What are you doing now? I mean, it seems like a, 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 a raising a kid is challenging enough, let alone doing it with all of that extra complexity. What are you doing to to protect her going forward? Or do you have a plan for when she gets to be older and wants to make more of her own food decisions? I'm hoping that all of the money that's being, um, you know, there's a lot of great organizations like FAIR, like End Allergies Together, like the Food Allergy Fund that are actively, actively working to raise money to either at least understand the cause of food allergies, but also start to treat them. So I have my fingers and toes crossed that by the time my daughter's a little bit older, there will be an answer. Um, otherwise, we're just kind of winging it as we go. Like on a day-to-day -day basis, it's just being very vigilant. Her school literally, I, I'm like the hel helicopter parent from hell, but literally emails me a picture of every single thing she eats during the day because we've had some mishaps. And so, you know, it's just being vigilant. Like we might buy the same snack and I find that my daughter is learning this like food companies and I know this you don't have to announce when you make a change in ingredients so like every single time she eats something you have to look at the ingredients because there's definitely times when companies change ingredients on you um, you know I think the silver lining outside of partake being born is it's teaching her at a really young age to advocate for herself like we try to live a normal life and so we'll go out to dinner and she speaks up before I cannot even tell the waiter and she's four and she's like I have allergies to this this and this and I need my food to be safe and so hopefully that like learning to advocate for herself will carry over into other parts of her life as she gets older. That's awesome. You are raising an awesome daughter. I love it. So um, I'm, I'm really impressed that, you know, you went from this super corporate job at Coca-Cola of all places, and you decided to start a food business because, you know, essentially you saw a need for something. You have this great background in sales and marketing, but how did you figure everything else out? How did you fund this idea once once you had it? So the way we funded it initially was we did a Kickstarter campaign, so that money helped some. Um, as we started to get into stores, I started to see very quickly, just even from a cash flow perspective, like the money was coming back in, but I had to put the money out for, at the time, what seemed like huge production runs. So we just needed more cash. And so 
we became a very leveraged household very quickly. I emptied my 401k. I sold my engagement ring. We stopped going out you as much. You sold your engagement ring? I did. Do you miss it? <laughs> you know, I still have my band, and hopefully one day the business will do well enough that I can get another ring, I hope. It's a be- it's a beautiful wedding band. I'll vouch Thank for you. that. I'm looking at it. It's quite such, beautiful. Well, it's such like a statement of commitment to to, to this project at a at a point where you didn't really have much traction or didn't really know how well it was going to do. I feel like um, there was a quote from Beyonce, the queen, that I was like, if I'm willing to bet on one thing, it's myself. And I knew that I was so passionate about what I was doing that, you know, I know that there every day there's like ups and downs and lots of downs and like crazy twists and turns. But like we just keep going and keep working at it. And I know that there's a problem that needs to be solved because my family lives it every day because I meet other people who experience it. And we just want to do something to make a small difference. Awesome. And what about the recipe? Did you like go in your kitchen and say, okay, I'm going to make like the most delicious GMO free, nut free, allergen free, vegan, gluten free cookies that you can, that you can possibly make. What was the process of actually developing the recipes in your products? So that's what I said, but that's not what happened. So (laughs) I, I went and I spent a bunch of money at Whole Foods and thought I would create this magical cookie. And i failed horribly. And so then I turned to LinkedIn um, because you can internet stalk anything nowadays. And so I looked at some of the large players in this free from market and I found a woman who's been like an absolute godsend for us. Um, She's like Ivy League undergrad led innovation for one of the largest free free from companies prior to their acquisition and was also willing to answer an email, like a cold email from a random person who was like, I have this idea. Um, And so she helped bring the idea to life. There were lots of twists and turns before that where we like potentially worked with these different bloggers and I could very quickly see like this is not a fit and so we kissed a lot of frogs before we met our our food scientist princess and let's just uh define free from since we said we were going to do that Valerie do you know what free from is well I I am learning today that free from means the product is free from (laughs) allergens GMOs what am I missing? That's pretty much it. So tep- typically, like if you're talking about the free from category, if you're looking at like syndicated data like spins, they're talking about products that are gluten free, definitely. But then also happen to a lot of them happen to be top eight allergen free. But the minimum criteria to be like classified as free from is to be gluten free. What I find so interesting about that label, and you know, having been to the fancy food show and all the big, uh, the big food expos, uh, it seems like there's a growing trend around free from both free from foods, but also just free from labeling, where even foods that it doesn't really make sense, they'll, they'll put a sticker on the label that says free from whatever. The, you know, there's salt that's labeled non-GMO, which is my favorite example of a, <laughs> of a disaster, since salt is not organic. Of course, it's not genetically modified. There's no genetic. Everyone doesn't know that, Ethan. <laughs> salt, is a, salt is a rock. You don't need to put a thing on it saying it wasn't genetically modified. But... Uh, so I don't know. How do you feel? How do you feel entering this very crowded space, uh, potentially a very trendy market, and often trendiness leads to confusion or or uh, people making purchases based on choice rather than necessity. Um, like how do you, how do you juggle that all of those um, those forces on your business? I think because of the reason that our business like the mission behind our company like will always be a free from company and we don't like for us it's not a trend it's at the heart of what we do and what we make and so everything that we make will always be top eight allergen free um you know whether or not things are vegan in the future like that's uh, another like question but like because of the mission behind the company and our 
want for as many people as possible to enjoy our products we'll always lean in on allergy friendly but i do find that the space is really crowded and the uh the labeling is a little bit frustrating sometimes when you see products that are naturally gluten-free labeled as gluten-free and it's also frustrating and i fell for this before i, I learned more about the space like you see these labels like gluten-free or vegan and you think oh this is totally healthy i should eat this and then like you realize that oh no actually it's made with lots of terrible like ingredients um and so you know i think that's something we'll always lean in on the fact that we're an allergy friendly company or free from company and you mentioned that you know sometimes you see these vegan or gluten-free products that aren't healthy what is healthy or at least healthier about your products your snacks your cookies yeah, so they're definitely still a cookie. So so not like definitely not like eating a vegetable, but in the spectrum of cookies, we like to think they're better for you. So we use organic that organic ancient grain flours like buckwheat, millet. We use cassava flour and oat flour. Um, you'll find that our cookies have like 20 to 50% less sugar than most of the gluten-free and vegan cookies on the market. And we sweeten with plum concentrate, apple juice, and organic cane sugar. We snuck veggies into lots of our flavors. We use rosemary extract as a preservative. So for the most part we tried to keep the ingredient label like things that you could find in your pantry and definitely like our bar is what I feed this to my own child and I'm pretty picky about like what I would give her what are her favorite flavors she's like a chocolate monster so she loves the double chocolate and we have an even chocolatey chocolatier I don't know what the <laughs> word is there. even more chocolatey cookie coming out in January that I'm super pumped about how, how does she feel uh, when she sees your products on the shelf? Or like, how is she engaging with this thing that her mother is doing? She is working a trade show with me this weekend. <laughs> so she's like all in. Um, I find it so cool that it's really sparked an entrepreneurial spirit within her. My husband's really tall. And one night my daughter and I had on pajamas. And she's like, why doesn't daddy have on pajamas? And I was like, well, it's really hard to find pajamas for people his height. And she's like, we should start a men's pajama company. I was like, you're right, we should. And then like later that night, she's like, do you think Think you'll be able to get my company on TV, and so I feel like, yeah. like her <laughs> like seeing that you have a problem, and rather than like complain and moan about it, you actually just do something about it is really refreshing. Um, because I don't think there's really a such thing as work-life balance. There's just like this integration um, of both things. Like we bring her along to trade shows, so she also gets to see like the hard work um, that comes along with some of the more fun things that we get to do that are related to the business. So I'm hoping that it's having a really positive impact on her. Yeah, I grew up in my mother's businesses. She owned actually she owned toy stores, which was a terrible place to be a kid. But um, <laughs> a terrible place to well, be a kid. You know, you, you can't play with anything. You just have to look at it on the shelf. Uh, but but growing up in in my mother's business, seeing the work that went into it, seeing the hours, seeing the effort, seeing the the highs and lows, uh, was uh, I think has been a lot of. Uh, has been a great resource for me to draw on. As, as, as an entrepreneur yourself. As an entrepreneur myself. Yes, yeah. awesome. My, my <laughs> mother and I get together and talk pricing strategy. Oh. <laughs> I mean, so, Denise, I, I am curious though. Um, where did you kind of like find the business acumen to not just launch this business, but then scale it? Did you um, get to benefit from any incubator programs? I know in the past, Ethan has kind of spoken about. Sometimes they're a good fit. Sometimes yeah. you're not really in the right place in your career to ben or not career, but your business lifespan to best benefit from them. That was very diplomatic, them. Brian. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. 
I think um, there are a few things. I had this one practice. I need to get back on it because it was so helpful. I initially started out and I would talk to like these founders whose companies appeared to be on fire and they'd be like, oh yeah, we're just killing it. And then I realized like I was getting nothing substantial from that. So I started talking to people who I felt like were really smart and really scrappy whose businesses failed to understand like, because it's a lot different when you're having a conversation with somebody whose business is in a rocket ship because they're like only thinking about the good things. Whereas like you talk to somebody whose business just died and they put like they're all into it, they will tell you all the landmines and all the things not to do and all the things they wish they would have done differently. So I had this practice of like every couple of weeks talking to someone that I admired whose business had failed to learn kind of like where to watch out. Um, and then we were lucky enough to be a part of the Chobani Incubator. I feel like it literally like changed the life of our business. Um, we got in at a really important time for our company. We were in one region of Whole Foods. We were in Wagmans, but we were on that cusp of do we scale? Are we going to scale? How are we going to scale? And so to have the resources of Chobani, to have our fellow co cohort members who are going through similar struggles, to have like the past companies that we could tap into who are just a little bit further along or even way farther along who could, we could lean on, it was just an invaluable experience. And now how many Whole Foods and Wegmans and regions are you in? So we are in our original region of Whole Foods, which is the Southwest. We're going into Whole Foods Northeast in February, and then we may have some more exciting Whole Foods news coming for July. And uh, you also did a Kickstarter, right? How did that fit into this whole, the whole launch? That was in the early, early days. Um, and we wanted to, well, the mo money was really important. I also wanted to understand if, like our consumer base, like food allergy moms were interested in this product, if this idea had legs. What I found out after doing the Kickstarter, um, which was like a seemingly successful Kickstarter, we raised $31,000, was that food allergy moms, for the most part, are not hanging out on Kickstarter. Um, it's actually like a lot more male dominated, a lot more like tech focused. And so the way that we were able to raise the $31,000 was like calling in favors from every single person that we had ever met. I literally think I sent a message to every single LinkedIn connection that I have, which is really shameful, but it worked and we, <laughs> we were able to raise the money. If I were to go back and do it again, you know, I don't know if I would. You might skip the Kickstarter <laughs> yeah. stuff. Well, they all got cookies, so it worked out for did them. They, did That's they true. get cookies? They all got cookies. So, okay. Yeah, that works. That's kind of win-win-ish. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to take a two-minute break. Uh, we'll be right back. Stay with us. Since the mid-1800s, before Wisconsin was even recognized as a state, its resident cheesemakers have been putting the art into artisan cheese. When early settlers from Switzerland, Germany, and Italy came to Wisconsin, they brought their cheesemaking expertise with them. They chose Wisconsin because the terroir reminded them of the homes they'd left behind in Northern Europe. The soil and water of Wisconsin is nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin's cheesemakers draw from their rich European heritage and cheesemaking traditions and combine them with incredible innovation to produce half of the nation's specialty cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers never stop experimenting, trying to improve, and dreaming of your next favorite cheese that has yet to be imagined. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. To be alive. 
welcome back. You're listening to Why Food, and we're joined this week by Denise Woodard, who is the founder and CEO of Partake Foods, a, a cookie and snack company. Uh, we were just talking about some of the challenges of starting a business, especially a business um, in a space that people were not really aware of, and, and finding your, your audience, which uh, was challenging on Kickstarter, on the platform of Kickstarter. Um, so what have you done since then? How have you, how have you connected with the, the, the moms who are serving snacks to their kids who can't have allergens? So some of the marketing um, activations that we do are we attend a lot of in-person events. This weekend we'll be at the New Jersey Veg Fest in Secaucus, but we are very much on a circuit of like any vegetarian, vegan, gluten-free, food allergy-focused, consumer-facing shows where we can actually like get out and meet the people who are eating and buying our cookies. Um, so we do a ton of those. We are really trying to stay engaged. There's lots of uh, Facebook mom like Facebook allergy mom groups like No Nuts Moms has like 26,000 members. So we do like a lot of giveaways and announcements and recipe shares with them. Um, We've leaned heavily on PR. And yeah, that's kind of what we're doing from a marketing perspective. And we know you have a marketing background, but have you kind of been carrying this whole... (laughs) How have you done that? Has it been like a one-woman show from the beginning? Because you, I mean... Just my brief interactions with you, you seem like a real go-getter. So I could kind of see you doing it, but the results are just outrageously amazing. We have been a one-woman show. My board would get irritated. Not irritated, but they would, like, chide me because I would be like, we did this and we did that. And they'd be like, you don't have any employees yet. (laughs) You need need the we to be, like, a real we. So we've just brought on our first full-time employee, a senior marketing manager. We're bringing on a director of operations in the next couple of weeks. We're actively looking for a salesperson. So the team will hopefully continue to grow we have had help though we've leaned heavily on we have an outsourced um, marketing agency we work with we worked with an outsourced back office accounting we worked with like an outsourced like part-time social media freelancer so we've had help here and there but it was really important to me to keep the team lean because one we didn't have any money before we raised money but also like from as a from a like personal perspective, I didn't feel right bringing someone on and like making this their livelihood until I felt really sure that like we were ready to scale and that we were going to grow and we'd have the money to be able to pay them and pay their benefits and like have a a happy place for them to be. You also have a a fairly high profile investor, which I know there's some, some limitations on what you can and can't say, but uh, tell us about, tell us about that. Yeah. Tell us about this funding that you recently did. I'm so, so grateful. Fundraising. So we raised a small friends and family round in late 2017 to support the launch of our one region of Whole Foods and Wegmans. And then those went really well. We went through the Chobani incubator and I was like, okay, we're ready, I think, for a seed round of funding and to expand further. And I was on the angel circuit in New York. I think I pitched 86 times, more than 86 times. I got 86 no's. Um, But we got a yes from Marcy Venture Partners, which is Jay-Z's venture fund in conjunction with um, him, Larry Marcus, and Jay Brown, who's the CEO of Rock Nation. They led our seed round of $1 million that we closed in June. And then we have some experienced CPG executives who who filled out the round for us. So I feel like we have a a really good mix of like glitz and glam plus like seasoned operators who can help us scale. 
And uh, has Jay-Z tasted the cookies? What, uh, what well, feedback I mean, have you gotten? Would you invest in a company if you hadn't tasted the product <laughs> and didn't like the product? Yeah, that's fair enough. Fair Ethan's enough. trying to get you in trouble because he might not be like a Beyonce social media follower, but I am. And they are very private about... They? E- about the f- things that they eat? The things that they eat, Specifically yes. food? Uh, specifically everything. Now, if, if Beyonce gives you a shout out on Instagram, because she has done that before, she was like, oh, look at my vegan cupcake. And that was when she secretly dropped her Beyonce like video, full video album back in like 2014. <laughs> Might have been 2013. But um, yes, but they, they are very like, mm. yeah. You got to sign NDAs and everything else, Ethan. Yeah, all, right. all right. So we won't, ask you, we won't ask you any more questions. We won't ask you if you've signed an NDA yet. Um, what was the process of fundraising like? Was it exciting? Was it hard? Was it It was both? soul were... crushing. It was so painful. I hate to be a negative Nancy, but that has been by far the hardest part of the business for me. And I think also because you have to run the business while you're like getting the money to go continue to run the business. And so being at the time a one woman show and like actually trying to keep the lights on and keep the velocity up and keep the story good so that people would actually want to invest while going to meet with people every single day. It was hard. It was really, really hard. Any any lessons learned? Any tips that you'd give to, to other entrepreneurs planning that process for themselves? Start earlier than you think. I very arrogantly thought, well, I have this CPG background and I'm in these stores and my velocity is good, so I'll just close this round very quickly. Didn't happen. Um, lean on like personal connections. I didn't have necessarily the most robust network of high net worth individuals, but if you have a personal connection with someone, like if they're from the same place as you or went to the same school or happen to have food allergies, like... Go deep on that because that stuff matters. If you can find a personal connection, even if it doesn't exist to start with. Yes, look hard. Um, And don't waste your time on people who you don't think are the right fit for you. I was really guilty of that, of like spending time where like just because the person had money, I was like, well, they're like my boss and I have to answer all these questions. And my husband would be like, this person is not the right fit. Like, why are you even wasting your time? And I was like, but they could write the check. And he's like, do you even want them to? And at the time I was so desperate to close the round that I would like waste all my time, like answering all these questions and talking to people that I just didn't feel good about having involved in the business. So thankfully none of them are our current investors, but like, just like holding yourself to a standard, like this is your business. Like you built it. And while you need the capital, like don't lower your standards just to get the money. Sage advice. Yeah, I think something that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with is right. Bringing on an investor is not just the cash infusion that you need, but it's also a relationship that's going to last for the lifespan of the business. And is that somebody who you want to be able to call you and demand answers? And uh, exactly. and and you know you don't necessarily want to follow their advice. <laughs> exactly. So um, so I guess that's like really interesting that you are expanding your team right now. Have there been any, um, have you learned any lessons yet or how has it been actually finding people to hire who would be a good fit for the business? So hard as well. (laughs) Um, I think similar advice to the fundraising, like start way earlier than you think. Don't waste time on people that aren't the right fit. Um, one thing I was really guilty of, like, be so direct because there was a couple of conversations where we got really far along and I'd ask like, you know, where do you need to be compensation wise? And they'd given me like a very coy answer. And then when we got down to like make an offer, there was just such a big Delta that I was like, we just both wasted our time. So then I started to force people like, no, I need to know like a number, like we need to talk about the important, like make or break details before we even like fall in love because 
why fall in love if we can't get married? Um, and so <laughs> I love that. That's good. So that was uh, definitely something that I learned. Also, like tap into your networks. I found that the best people that the people that were ending up like hiring or people that I've met through a friend or through the Chobani incubator rather than just like posting something on LinkedIn. Yeah. Should we do some rapid fire? Yeah, let's do some rapid fire. I'm nervous. You want to start? (laughs) If you were a vegetable, what would you be? (laughs) Wait, we just have to pause because Denise turned to us during the break and said, don't ask me the vegetable question. But she gave a great answer. Valerie's just, just, uh, just going for it today. Oh, I feel dishonest saying it. Ethan also coached me on an answer. Brussels sprouts are legit my favorite vegetable, but it's because I have many layers. Mm. Thank you for that, coaching Ethan. Oh, my pleasure. Valerie, what's your favorite vegetable? What's your vegetable? Oh, now see? <laughs> it's hard. I just, I just did another podcast last week where somebody asked me this, so I, I have an answer all queued up. I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm going to go with rhubarb. That's a vegetable, mm. right? Yeah, sure. So. Okay, I'm going to go Such with rhubarb. a baker's answer. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's pink. It's tall and it's 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 what I aspire to be. It's like <laughs> I aspire Sour to be baked and in a pie. Slightly poisonous. <laughs> Sour, but add a little sugar and put it in a pie. I like Wait, that. Aren't rhubarb leaves poisonous? Isn't that is a that thing? true? I didn't say I want it to be rhubarb leaves. I want to be rhubarb right, stalks, right, the tall, lean, pink ones. And you, Ethan? Well, I, so I had to answer this question last week. And actually, the question was fruit, not vegetable. I went with lime. Because I'm you're the sour, sour one. and bitter, <laughs> and, uh, but but good good mixed into other things. I don't know. I'm now good. I'm just reaching. <laughs> good with tequila. Good with tequila. Okay. Yeah. You guys are yeah. Good at this. Yeah. Um, all right. Next question. Uh, what uh, is the best meal you've ever eaten that cost less than five or ten dollars? I was in LA last weekend for a coffee festival, and um, I had some Korean soup, and I don't, I'm going to butcher the name of it, but it was so warm and brothy and delicious, and it cost like $7. So. What was in the soup? What was it the... was, it had mushrooms in it, and it had pork meat in it. It was very brothy, and it was just like a mm. bunch of goodness. It had rice in it, and it was delicious. At a restaurant that you would recommend? Do you remember yes. the name of the restaurant? It was called... Oh, shoot. I don't remember the name. It's so <laughs> terrible. I'm sorry. Oh, Bon, bon Juk. B-O-N-J-U-K. Okay. Maybe if people follow you on Instagram, then, yes. they'll, yes. uh, then they'll know the name. At DG Woodard or Partake <laughs> Foods. That's me. Uh, next question. Oh, it's got? my turn again. Um, oh, now, so it's interesting because your background is really in business, not so much as like being a food maker, but I will go with a food question anyway so if there were one kitchen utensil you couldn't live without what would it be i would say utensil wise spatula i don't know why i use a spatula for everything i use it to flip things but i kind of use it to stir and kind of do a little bit of everything rubber spatula metal spatula what's your I like rubber spatulas, but I'm trying to move towards using just stainless steel. So hopefully at some point I won't be worried about my nonstick dishes because I have gotten rid of most of them. Mm, yeah. Although uh, uh, metal spatulas are hard to, they, they serve a different purpose. You <laughs> need do. that like flexibility of the rubber to but that's scrape a very, the inside of a bowl. It's a very healthy or health oriented conscious answer. Mm. Um, what did you eat for lunch as a kid growing up? I never had, fun fact, I've never had school lunch ever in my life. My mom made my lunch every single day and she made really yummy sandwiches. And then she also made Korean food that I was so embarrassed about at the time. But now looking back, I'm like, dude, I wish you would send me some of that. 
What were some of the dishes that you um, would make? Kimpop, which is kind of like sushi, like rice with rice roll with a bunch of random vegetables and meat inside of it was my favorite. She would send me with like rice and seaweed and like bulgogi and like all these things that now sound so delicious to me. But at the time, I didn't want to be different. And so I was like, why do you, why are you doing this to me? Why can't I just eat the pizza? Yeah. Um, should we wrap it up? Or? Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's next for the business and, uh, and where our listeners can find you? Cool. Um, So for 2020, we are expanding rapidly. So we'll go from a regional brand to a national brand. Thank you. Um, Exciting retailer announcements. We're coming out with a new line of a different type of cookie in January. We just came out with a snack pack. So still cookies, but really innovating around that. Longer term, we want to create a brand platform that makes delicious, nutritious, allergy-friendly snacks that nearly everyone can enjoy. And right now, you can find us on Wegmans, um, lots of independent natural grocers, Whole Foods across the Southwest Central Market, or you can check out our website, partakefoods.com, for our full store like ugh, full store locator. And uh, Facebook, Instagram, what's your preferred? Instagram. We're, every, we're on all of social media platforms, but Instagram is where you can learn most about the brand and keep up with us, and the handle is partakefoods with an S. And your personal Instagram, you're, you're, you're working on being an influencer. So I want to yes, make sure we I get a plug in. Yes, I made it on private. So it's D-G Woodard, W-O-O-D-A-R-D. And you can watch my cute daughter and see me do things like film po- or tape podcasts. That sounds awesome. Um, and as always, you can reach us uh, via email, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can find me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram and Facebook. And you can find me um, everywhere at Foodie in New York, including my website, foodieinnewyork.com. Thanks to Amanda for being an awesome sound engineer, as always. Uh, Thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song, Blind. And thanks to Denise for joining us. Thank you for having me. See you next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.